Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Angelina Davidova, a Berlin-based climate and environmental journalist. I am Boris Schneider, a Berlin-based climate and energy expert. We are co-producing this episode with Natalie Saw, a Paris-based climate journalist. So this particular episode is the first episode in the special COP27 series. Now, what is COP27? COP27 is uh, another UN climate summit, which is starting in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt in just a few days, actually on Monday, uh, November the 6th. And the summit will bring together many thousands of official climate negotiators from the countries all over the world, also observers of the process, and those are climate activists, climate experts, people from the non-governmental sector, people from scientific institutions, companies and businesses as well, and obviously journalists. I will be going there myself uh, during the second week of the summit, and I will be reporting on the spot about what's happening there, what the countries are promising, what the activists are doing, what the experts are saying needs to be done. And as usual, we'll be paying special attention to what countries of our region are doing. So the countries of the region of Eastern Europe, Russia, Caucasus, and Central Asia. We'll be talking to the people on the spot. We'll be analyzing their promises and pledges. And we'll also be seeing how the delegations are behaving themselves and what climate experts and climate activists are thinking about it. As you might have heard already, uh, the main topic of this year's COP in Egypt, which is, as you all know, in Africa, is um, climate finance, along with help for the most climate-vulnerable countries. Many of these countries are located in Africa, but just recently, uh, one of the countries in Central Asia, that is Kyrgyzstan, also became a member of the Climate Vulnerable Forum. And we will actually be speaking about that in the interview that we are doing with uh, Bakhtil Chunanbaivar, who is a climate journalist and communicator with the Climate Action Network Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and Caucasus. And this interview is coming in just a few minutes. Other topics for the summit are climate adaptation, with the negative consequences of climate change, climate adaptation is becoming an ever more important topic. More money is needed, more efforts is needed, and also more help is needed to the most vulnerable and developing countries. Along with climate finance and climate adaptation, the whole topic of loss and damage is also on the table. Should it be a separate negotiation track? Should there be separate climate finance reserved for it? Now, what is loss and damage, you ask us? And loss and damage is the climate damage which is already happening and which makes us, the global community, planet Earth, lose something forever and uh, experience the loss of forests, maybe islands, maybe coral reefs. That kind of risks, that kind of damage cannot be adapted to. And we cannot really speak about climate adaptation. It's about something as it's clear from its name, lost forever. And the question is, who is paying for it? Who is getting compensation from it? And where the money is coming from? Now, many developing countries and particularly climate vulnerable countries are once again demanding that 
there should be a separate track and that the countries should be compensated for these losses because it means losses for the ecosystems, for the biodiversity, but also direct losses for people and communities. Now, within our region, we have quite a few countries which are particularly vulnerable to climate change. I already mentioned Kyrgyzstan, but also quite a few other countries in Central Asia and in other regions and in other parts of Eurasia also speak about how negative consequences of climate change, climate damage, climate risks are already ruining their economies and making life of people ever more difficult than before. Uh, thank you very much, Angelina. So today, as you said, we are joined by Baktugul Chinebaeva, who is a climate journalist and communicator with the Climate Action Network in Eastern Europe, the Caucasus and Central Asia. And she's joining this interview from Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan. I began by asking Baktugul why this COP is important for the region of the Climate Action Network in Eastern Europe, the Caucasus and Central Asia, and what the country delegations are coming to the COP with. So, for the region of Eastern Europe, Caucasus and Central Asia, COP27 is important because this year, for the first time, there is an opportunity to declare the countries of the region individually, and not as before altogether with Russia or with Central Asia. So, before in climate policy issues, this region was viewed as a huge part of Russian climate issues as well. And let's say before that, the ECA countries were considered in the context of Russia and Ukraine. Undoubtedly, Russia was in the lead in climate policy in terms of the number of experts and in presenting a position at international climate negotiations. But due to the war uh, started by Russia on February 24 this year, international attention on climate policy is aimed at the countries of Central Asia, Caucasus. One of the main issues in the upcoming negotiations will be financial compensation for loss and damage from the climate crisis, as you know. The countries of the Caucasus and Central Asia are very vulnerable to climate change. They are already expressing a decrease in the amount of water, drought and melting glaciers, etc. There is a great threat of desertification loss of pastures and crops as well. And literally this morning we received some information about the delegation as well. As I heard, two presidents of 11 ICA countries will speak in high-level meetings. Uh, they are the president of Tajikistan, Mamali Rahman, and the president of Armenia, Bahank Khachaturian. Two prime ministers, that is the prime minister of Kazakhstan and Georgia. And as far as I know, um, a delegation is also coming from Mongolia, headed by prime minister Natalia Gavrilitsia. Uh, and other important uh, issue that I want to point out that there's a network, the, that the regional climate network can ECA. We are providing uh, some support for our NGO members. We have 50 eight NGOs in 11 countries in ICA. So, um, for example, a representative of the environmental NGO Angel is coming from Kazakhstan to COP. Members of the Move Green environmental movement in Kyrgyzstan are coming from uh, to COP as well. And some members from Georgia, Armenia, Ukraine are also traveling to the COP27 to Sharmashe. The participation of uh, civic activists and civil society is very important in such negotiations. And I hope from Kyrgyzstan also some youth members will go to the COP and they are going to the youth conference uh, before the COP as well. 
so they can strengthen the position of the country and the region as a whole, I think. Uh, you already started to speak about the activists and kind of the civil society of the participating countries. Could you please tell us, is there a joint position of the civil society from the region of your organization? Mm -hmm. Just yesterday, we published our official position and we shared with our members and other uh, media organizations. In 2022, our region is facing multiple crises. As you know, increasingly frequent large-scale climate anomalies like headwaves, drought, fires, and floods have caused many deaths and forced thousands of people to leave their homes, um, exposing insufficient action to adapt to the climate crisis, uh, especially the war also, you know, was very exhausting. The situation is aggravated by the war Russia started against Ukraine, as well as the military conflicts between Armenia and Azerbaijan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, also the main uh, priority. Uh, they claim, uh, you know, the lives of a huge number of people cause enormous damage to the environment, uh, cancel many agreements between countries, including those aimed at combating the climate crisis, lead to an energy crisis in our region. And uh, we have huge dependence of countries in fossil fuels. This year has shown how dependent world economies are on fossil fuels and that they are not really ready to give up coal, oil and gas in short terms, even uh, developed world. At the same time, even more ambitious action is needed to keep global temperature rises in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement. So as a can ECCA, we are urging that we need to get rid of the life-threatening dependence on fossil fuels. It's our first point in order to save life on the planet uh, and environment on the planet. We call on the parties to the UNFCCC to set a deadline for phasing out fossil fuels and to accelerate the just transition, you know, green transition and green energy to avoid subsequent military conflicts and catastrophes. We urge uh, the parties to the UNFCCC to agree on annual amount of compensation for loss and damage in vulnerable countries in the form of grant supports or another finance supports. We call on the parties to increase funding for climate change adaptation to 50% to our region from total allocated money. So eco-countries have great potential for climate change adaptation and green transition if they have finance. At the same time, strategies created at the national level very often remain only on paper, as you know, without leading to concrete improvements at the local level. So we call on negotiation parties to support the ability of local civil society organizations and uh, municipalities to receive climate finance and provide technical support for this. And other bullet point is um, that I want to point out environmental NGOs made their position last week from Central Asia. So I want to share with some bullet points of it. So they want to revise and adapt more ambitious targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That's a very nice position for me, I think. And take more of a proactive stance of promoting the region's role in the international climate commitments and processes. And also they want to introduce climate criteria into public planning, budgeting and procurement system. So they want 
the budgeting system to be open, not to authorize it by government, and etc. So they want to ensure the participation of NGOs and the openness of the development and implementation of climate policies with the involvement of all stakeholders, especially women and youth. That's the best uh, part of their position for me, I think. So significantly strengthen climate change adaptation measures primarily in the water and food sectors that require joint transboundary programs and regional cooperation at the main point of their position. Uh, you already spoke about many important points such as climate finance. Mm -hmm. And do I understand correctly that besides climate finance, the points of adaptation but also loss and damage will be, so to say, on the top of the agenda of this COP this year and that those points have a very high importance, especially for your region? Of course, sure, indeed. As we know, Global South always was in a high demand to asking for adaptation finance from Global West. Big emitters, countries like US, China, Europe, Russia, etc. But in UN's high-level climate negotiations, always coastal countries, African countries' voices were heard loudly. And for obtaining global interest, I think civil society in ECCA countries need to be very powerful. Last three years, we can see some improvements on civil society activism related to climate change and also obtaining finance from adaptation funds also requires some efforts from governments as well, as you know. For example, if government requests money from global adaptation finance, receives it, but not uses it properly, that is a huge problem. Uh, we know corruption is a huge issue in Central Asian countries, in Caucasus as well, and this issue makes credibility very weak. So adaptation fundings can, you know, can trust to these governments. So, but, but despite all these problems, after a general lack of progress, loss and damage will again take center stage of COP27 negotiations to our countries and uh, during our countries as well. The world will be watching to see if developed countries take this opportunity to show solidarity with vulnerable countries by finally agreeing to establish a high-quality funding mechanism to address loss and damage. For the countries of Central Asia, this issue is very relevant. Um, but so far, there is uh, there has not been a single statement by all the countries of Central Asia. Also, in a COP26, uh, um, had a special pavilion of Central Asian countries, but uh, we didn't have some kind of common uh, position on loss and damage. But we have kind of five countries, one region, one vote policy. But this policy is only on paper. This is not real. Perhaps this topic will give countries a chance to unite at COP27. I am hoping for this. And uh, and meanwhile, uh, this region, Eastern Europe, Caucasus, and Central Asia region is vulnerable to various hazards, including floods, earthquakes, droughts, like uh, coastal countries. So landslides and forest fires we are having each year. Over the past uh, 30 years, we have five more than 500 significant floods And earthquakes have resulted in approximately 50,000 doses more than, you know, costing more than 80 billion dollars in damages. Also, it's a hard to get some data from our region on loss and damage. And we want to communicate loss and damage, but we don't have data. I think governments of uh, ECCA countries need to make some joint researches and then make some position and statement on loss and damage in such conferences, COP27 or COP28, 
hopefully next year. Thank you. And um, you already mentioned the importance of uh, or the levels of vulnerability of uh, many of the countries in your region, in the, as you call it, the ECCA, the Eastern Europe, Caucasus and Central Asian region. Um, I read that a week ago, uh, Kyrgyzstan, so the country that you are joining us from, became a member of the Climate Vulnerable Forum. Could you mm -hmm. please explain to our listeners what this forum is, why that is important and what it eventually means for the country to join it? Mm -hmm. Indeed, that was a great news ahead of COP27. And I think it's a regional climate network. And personally, as a communicator for regional climate network, so I was so happy to hear about this news. And uh, Climate Action Network, ECCA, made lots of effort to uh, happen it. Last year in COP27, we tried to link Kyrgyz government members to CVF secretariat, so to the Climate Vulnerable Forum secretariat. So they had some dialogue uh, during the COP26. So result is clear. Uh, in October, Kyrgyzstan became the first country in the ECCA region to join the CVF. Um, uh, probably you know the CVF is a platform that brings together the countries most vulnerable to climate change and which produce the least amount of emissions. So Kyrgyzstan's part of an emission is very, very weak and very, uh, you know, low. Together, they unite in advocacy of international negotiations, strengthen each other's position, and set an example of ambitious climate policy. So kind of ambitious policy, yeah? We are pleased that the voice of vulnerable countries is becoming louder at international climate negotiations. Kyrgyzstan has historically emitted a very small amount of greenhouse gases. Meanwhile, the country's inhabitants are already exposed to the effects of climate crisis, such as Glaciers are melting, we have drought in our country, and also we have lots of mud flows, uh, etc. Pastures and agriculture areas suffer from drought and fires, so our population's income comes only from agriculture. As a climate journalist and communicator, I am very pleased that government of Kyrgyzstan is looking for strong allies, strong international allies to fight the climate crisis and is responding to public uh, requests, especially, you know, civil society's requests. So what it means for Kyrgyzstan? Membership for Kyrgyzstan in the uh, CVF, uh, Climate Vulnerable Forum, is on the one hand strengthening the country's position at the international level. On the other hand, it's an opportunity to increase potential and attract various kinds of resources within the country. By becoming part of the forum, Kyrgyzstan declared the country is aware of the seriousness of the climate agenda for society as a whole and are ready to work together with other countries and with other organizations to overcome challenges. The forum is one of the you know, main things of South-to-South partnership by joining which we get access to research, materials, technologies, and I think to the positive practices of other countries for adaptation to climate change uh, and energy issues as well. And in, we can integrate into the process of developing international solutions necessary for countries like us, the most vulnerable. The main thing now is to use the opportunity that are opening up for, before us and not to put them off identically, you know, not put only to the paper. What is your perception from your region? Has 
or have the geopolitical changes that, as the result of the invasion um, led to more fossil kind of lock-ins or mm. has it on the contrary accelerated the green transition or the green transitions in the different countries? So <laughs> I don't have clear answer for this topic, but I, as at the beginning of the UN's, uh, UNFCCC's position and UNFCCC is doing the COP that was assembled to make high decisions countries ratified agreements that they will limit the rise in air temperature, the green transition that was the you know, main position, and funding, adaptation fundings, mitigation, and so on. But the war, as you have mentioned, launched by Russia this year, changed everything. <laughs> and for me also, the, this war changed everything. As if at the initial stage, again, developed countries began to look for a new way of fossil fuels, you know, to gaining fossil fuels. Uh, yesterday, I saw that the Ukrainian Climate Network issued a statement in which it was calling to include the emissions caused by Russia's invasion through its direct military action. So, so to say, to count those emissions mm -hmm. in addition to the emissions that are already counted by Russia. Do you see any chance for that to be seriously negotiated at the COP and maybe even implemented at some point? <laughs> so, well... Um The issue of the emission of Russian military aggression has been dragging from since, I think, from 2014, uh, when Crimea uh, events happened. As everyone knows, there are emissions from the countries that are entered into the state cadastres, and but there are emissions from the war as well, from military equipment, tanks, missiles, and so on. A few days ago, uh, the Minister of Ecology of Ukraine, uh, Ruslan Strelets, uh, said that Russian aggression caused uh, 31 million tons of greenhouse gas emission, which harms the climate. And that's a huge, uh, that's, if, if you can compare its uh, emission uh, with a small country of Europe or with, small, uh, with uh, New Zealand. So, and Ukraine is demanding compensation for climate damage from Russia as well. According to the latest estimates, this is several trillion dollars. Due to Russian aggression, about uh, aggression, about 20% of nature conservation areas of Ukraine and about a third of the land, land in general were affected. So, um, as I heard, Ukrainian Climate Network statement is clear. So, even Ukrainian Minister of Ecology statement is clear. They are saying that the emissions that Russia caused since February 24, 2022, through direct military actions, must be assigned to the balance sheet of the aggressor country or Russia. And they are demanding countries should accelerate the energy transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources as well. Those to achieve the approved goals of the Paris Agreement and prevent future wars and conflicts. So, and also they include post-war time to their position, like, you know, abandoning new projects in the field of nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is also the big issue today. Taking into account Russia's, you know, occupation of the Zaporozhye NPP and the beginning of the year also they Chernobyl zone, as you remember, being under the constant risk of missiles hitting the facilities of other nuclear plants in the country and overall in Europe. 
Ukrainian NGO is also requesting update the energy strategy, taking into account the new reality, new post-war reality. The proposal of Ukraine's membership in the EU, so Ukraine wants to go to the EU. So this recovery must take into account climate change. So adaptation to climate change must be part of the development recovery plans during the rebuildings, says Ukraine's NGOs. So I think that's a huge, ambitious, you know, position from Ukraine's NGOs. And hopefully, so they have their own pavilion and they will have some side events as well. So they will have some attention from international audience as well. Thank you very much, Baktigul, for this interview. This was an excellent overview over the different uh, delegations coming to the COP, over the civil society's positions and what we can expect from the negotiations this year. Also from my side, big thank you to Baktigul. And um, as I mentioned earlier, I'll be traveling to COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, in, in about a week. And we will be reporting from there for you. But for today, that's it. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. Our podcast is supported by NOST, a Berlin-based NGO backing cross-border journalism, also the Moscow Times, and the European Climate Foundation. A big thank you to all our three partners for making our work possible. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. So please get in touch on Twitter, where you will find us at Eurasian Climate. If you can, please support our show on Patreon at patreon.com Eurasian Climate. We'll be back on the 14th of November with the second episode in our special COP27 series. So see you then. Mm-hmm.